how are we bringing together policy? How are we bringing together different agencies to work together? How is How are tech funding sources and philanthropies thinking and coordinating their efforts? Because at the end of the day, the only way that we're gonna create change is if we figure out how to move together instead of all moving in our own direction. Hello and welcome to another episode of Life with Fire podcast, the podcast that explores our relationship with wildfire and how we can better coexist with it in the future. I'm your host, Amanda Montai, and boy, do we have an episode for you today. I'm so excited to release this one finally. Um, Our guest today is Natasha Stavros. Uh, Natasha has one of the most impressive resumes I think I have ever seen. Uh, She is currently the director of the Earth Lab at CU Boulder. Uh, She has a PhD in quantitative fire ecology. She worked as the science and applications system engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. And she's a new mother. I don't know how she does it all. It's very impressive. Um, Nonetheless, I was super excited to talk to Natasha. She is an absolute treasure trove of information and not only sort of hard clinical information, like what she's learned uh, via all of her positions with NASA and with CU Boulder and uh, through her schooling, but also very in touch with the psychological impacts of wildfire, the sociological impacts of wildfire. So that all being said, this was a really fascinating conversation just because we were able to sort of bridge the gap between the human impacts of wildfire as well as uh, Natasha's connection to wildfire, which was rooted uh, deeply in her having been evacuated from one of the first mega fires in California in the early 2000s. Um, Her family had to evacuate. And then while she was in school, her family again had to evacuate um, in another fire in 2007. So these are very much informing or these ended up informing her career in wildfire. And uh, she's able to speak to those things, but she's also able to speak to um, the place of technology and building resilience to wildfire, uh, how we need to put our egos aside if we hope to innovate our way out of this problem. Um, And then also, you know, kind of connecting those innovations or rather sort of rooting those innovations in good policy and in good technology. Um, We talked kind of at length about technology. We also talked quite a bit about the impacts of smoke and kind of what we can expect or what we can expect to have to do to minimize the impacts of smoke moving forward. Um, gosh, we covered so much ground. This is probably the most ground that I've covered in one of these episodes. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, I think this is a very accessible episode for anybody, whether you work in policy or academics, or you're working in fire on the ground, or you work for an agency. Either way, I hope you glean something from this episode and that it is relevant to your life and your work in the fire space. That all being said, I'll keep this short and sweet because I could probably go on forever about this and about Natasha and the work that she does. So I'll just let her speak for herself. Uh, Natasha Stavros, everybody, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. My family was evacuated in one of the first megafires of the 21st century in San Diego. Um, And then when I was off at college, my family was evacuated again in 2007 and my friends all lost their homes. And so it was this very like personal experience for me. And it was much more of like a personal journey. And then I went through school and I was looking for, um, a program that would allow me to use data and observations, um, 
to kind of help in real world sort of sustainability um, questions. And I reached out to the Pacific Wildland Fire Sciences Lab um, at the Forest Service in next to University of Washington. And they said, well, we're looking at extreme fire events, climate change and air quality degradation. You know, is that of interest to you? And I was like, well, I've had two smoke weeks where I couldn't go to school because the smoke was so bad. So sure, I'll study that. <laughs> and then, um, so I packed up, I went to University of Washington and I started in their forestry program and got to know a lot of you know, wildland firefighters and foresters, because I kind of come from more of like the computer science math geek background. And they got me out, out from behind the computer, out in the field, um, and learning a lot there. And so I started, I was one of the first people, if not the first person, to really try and quantify the likelihood of extreme fire events under climate change. Um, at the time, there was very little data. It hadn't happened very often. So a lot of the research was more anecdotal and less mathematical. And so I kind of started to tackle that problem. Now there's so much data that every, you know, everybody's studying it. Um, and so that kind of was the start. And then I went off and I was like, okay, I need to do something. I'll go do a postdoc and NASA was available. Um, there was a postdoc at NASA that was available. And they said, oh, we have all this unique data from aircrafts over fires. Um, we don't know what it means. You want to look at it? <laughs> um, so, I, so I started there kind of learning about technology and innovation and um, data and information systems. Um, but I was still very grounded in like, okay, that's all great but how is it useful? And so I kind of kept trying to like learn about new things in tech and in information technologies and um, how do we change systems? How do we change policy? How, is, you know, how do people make decisions in the first place? And I just kept getting pulled back into fire. Um, and it's just this thing that it's like so much a core of who I am that I can't leave it. Like, I think every fire season, I think, okay, good riddance. I'm exhausted. <laughs> I can't do another fire season. And then another fire happens, <laughs> you know, and it's like, I'm right back there. So, um, this year has been very personal, um, for me and for a lot of the people at, um, earth lab at CU Boulder, we had the Marshall fire on December 30th which was a total surprise. The next day we got a foot of snow. So it just, you know, it was outside of the fire season, the, the quote unquote fire season. Um, a lot of colleagues lost their home. And so, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, that reminder that like, we're right back here constantly and um, nature will prevail. Nature wants fire and fire will be here. And we can either learn to adapt and be resilient um, and take the lessons of our ancestors and societies who have used fire productively for millennia before us, or we can sit back and be devastated when it happens. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, that was why we, I initially had reached out. I was interested in hearing more about your um, kind of like what you guys were learning in the wake of the Marshall Fire 
Has anything actually, has anything come of that? Um, a lot has come from it. So, you know, there's been a lot of articles about like what makes Marshall fire so different. And there's a number of things that have come out that have been really different. I think first and foremost is that it burned one of the most fire research intense communities. So, I mean, we have everyone from structural engineers, hydrology engineers, fire scientists, mechanical engineers, um, atmospheric chemists, right? Like anybody who studies el any element that fire touches, which is really everything in the whole earth system, um, was personally impacted by the event. And so I think that's pretty unique from a lot of past fires. Um, so it got a lot of attention. And then I think the fact that it happened when it happened really shifted people's conversations and it was really interesting because I've done a lot of media interviews and this was kind of the first time where the media before introducing me would actually give an entire backstory on climate change and fire. You know, like, like the media was way ahead of the game um, in informing the public about it. And I think the conversation really shifted from, oh, this is so devastating to what does a resilient future look like? And it was really nice to see that change happen. Um, the Marshall Fire was the first time in my 13 year career studying extreme fires that I've ever felt comfortable calling something a climate fire. Um, because as you know, in wildlands, like it's usually these wildfire events. So I use that term very explicitly wildfire, not wild land fire, but wildfire, right? A wildfire is a fire that escapes, escapes management, right? And so these kind of fire events have been in forested landscapes. And there's always the question, well, is it how we managed or is it climate change? And it's very hard to tell, but with Marshall Fire, it was very clear because these are grasslands. And everything leading up to 60 to 70% fuel growth above normal was La Nina conditions that made very wet pre-season, a lot of grass growth. And then a shift to drought in the winter, which dried it all out. And one of the things that Earth Lab has studied is that, you know, we've studied human ignitions versus lightning ignitions. And we've seen that you know, 90% of fires that happen near homes are, are started by people. So anywhere where people interact with the landscape an ignition is inevitable. <laughs> and so, you know, we just had the right conditions and an inevitable ignition source and a very devastating fire. And the reality is, is that it didn't have to be as devastating um, if we shift the conversation to thinking about resilience. And that's where the conversation shifted. And it was really nice to see that happen. What elements does that conversation kind of necessitate or require? Like, what are we, what are we talking about when we talk about resilience in this, in this element, especially, or in this case, especially? That's such a great question. So I've, you know, it's interesting because if you had asked me three months ago, I had a very clear you know, I was thinking about resilience from the, you know, the community perspective. So I was thinking about it from ecology. I was thinking about it from how societies build and develop. So, you know, I had, you know, we had a paper recently come out called the fires that matter, which details, you know, essentially five 
resilience pathways. One is reduce carbon emissions. <laughs> um, another is to reduce human caused ignitions from infrastructure. So like networked microgrids from renewable energy. Um, another is you know, obviously prescribed burning, which we talk, you talk a lot about on your podcast. Um, you know, serving environmental and social justice in the process is another pathway to building resilience. Um, and then the other is building better, right? So thinking about building codes and zoning practices. But since the Marshall Fire and since the very personal connection to my community, I've talked with a number of psychologists as well. And so I think that when we think about resilience pathways, it's not just about the ecosystems, it's not just about our societies, but it's about us as individuals and the psychology and um, the, you know, I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Ecology of Fear, um, but it's about how fear of fire has set up the entire ecosystem that we have today from the policies to the way we manage and how much that fear can proliferate and how we need to build a resilience to the fear that happens when it is very personal. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like I have this conversation all the time. I'm like, what is, what does a resilient landscape look like to you? What does a resilient future look like? And I think a lot of the time, um, I mean, I'm talking to fire scientists and of course they're going to, they're going to call or, or they're going to talk about the ecology, uh, like the for the fire science element of it. But yeah, I think like what's missing from the broader conversation is like bringing us into it. Like, of course, like bringing in that psychology element because, because what's, what's happening now isn't necessarily working and we're not getting like the messaging out that we need to get out or something, something isn't necessarily lining up here. So it's like such this broad ecosystem of what resilience actually is and, that psychology element is such a huge part of it that it hasn't been discussed enough on the podcast. I'd like to maybe explore that more, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's an interesting element. And what were the psychologists saying? Like, what, what did you kind of like draw from that, those conversations? Well, so it's, it's interesting because like, I think right now, a lot of psychologists are just trying to grapple with helping people through the immediate traumatic event. Um, and I know I've, you know, I know on your podcast, you've talked about, you know, post-traumatic stress from fight wildland firefighters and you know but the reality is is that when a community burns people feel it and so you know boulder gets a lot of wind that comes off the mountains and that's those were the conditions that set up for a very fast spread rate of the marshall fire and there's a lot of fear in the community now every time there's a windy day you know like oh my gosh what's gonna happen now right so there's still very much that acute reaction and trauma but i would say also as somebody who had to evacuate my home in 2003 i still live with that trauma <laughs> i made a whole career off of that trauma um and i i have always had a go bag in my house i've always had an evacuation checklist and my husband who's from vermont doesn't understand it <laughs> It's like, it's like, why are you so worried? And now that we've gone through the evacuation a couple of times, he understands now, but yeah, that trauma just lives with you. It never really goes away. And so there's definitely a psychological component to it. And when you think about innovation and innovation science, so innovation science is studying how, 
how we innovate. And just to be clear, innovation is not about technology. Innovation is a change in the way that the system is, right? So when we talk about the way that we are and getting to a more resilient future, we're talking about a very holistic approach to change. We're talking about a change in policy, a change in the economic systems that support the way that we currently operate. Everything from how we fund and sponsor firefighters to how we build our communities to how um, we incentivize building those communities or rebuilding them um, to human behavior. And human behavior is, it kind of gets into decision sciences and decision theory where, yeah, we have data and we make decisions in a, in a data space and we have values. And those values play a very important role in how we ultimately act. And so it's not just about what's the data and how do we communicate it? It's about how do we place the data in the story that makes sense with the values, the variable value systems that exist. Is there a case study in like this systematic change that you're talking about in this actually working? Is there something that you kind of look about, look to as an anecdotal, like sign of success here? <laughs> um, so I actually recently published um, a paper um, on something called Wicked Innovation. It's spelled W-K-I-D. Um, and it, it's kind of a cute little play on things. Um, everyone's like, oh, like, like very Bostonian wicked you know, ah, that's a wicked problem. And that's actually a play on complex systems science. So in complex system science, a wicked problem is defined as a problem where no single group or organization has the authority to change it. It's not like, oh, if Biden would only say this, then all of a sudden the system would change, right? It's like, it doesn't matter what one person or one organization does or says because everybody has to buy into that change. And so that's what a wicked problem is in, in complex system science. And the innovation framework that I recently published, WKID, um, is actually based on how NASA innovates. And it stems from this idea that, so W stands for wisdom, K stands for knowledge, um, I stands for information, and D stands for data. And so it's this idea that if you really wanna change a system, you have to understand wisdom, which is how we make decisions in the first place, and then understand what the knowledge systems are in place for making that decision, and then what information could make or change the way that we do that. And so it's a way to sort of systematically use information technologies to give people information that they don't have available to them, right, that they're making leaps about and it's placing it in the context of their existing value systems. So it's not saying, I'm gonna give you information based on my value system. It's saying, how do you value this? How do, I how do I present this in a way that maps to and matches with your personal experience? Because ultimately people just do the best they can with what they have available to them. Like every human being does this, right? And so the framework is based on how NASA does it. And I will say that like, that is actually based on what NASA did back in the 60s to land on the moon, right? So there are very tangible examples of how we've changed, systematically changed the way that we operate in the world. Um, I don't know if you know this, but landing on the moon took 400,000 engineers. 
<laughs> wow, dang, I did not know that. It's insane. Like when you think about doing a class project with like two people or three people. <laughs> <laughs> and then you think like, oh no, 400,000 people had to cooperate to land us on the moon. And that, that doesn't even include all the policymakers that had to get behind the movement and the change. And so, um, you know, NASA did this back in the 60s. And then from that, they've developed some processes. And then from that, I've sort of extracted it out to say, how could you generally ap apply this? And that's kind of what I've been doing for the last year is trying to systematically work with different groups of people. So working with policymakers, working with managers, working with industry, actually, believe it or not, I see more change happening by industry than anybody else. Um, they're very agile. They're very interested in investing. Um, I think, and I think actually fires this really it's kind of this exciting space like I've had a couple reporters say like especially after don't look up came out the movie <laughs> they're like how do you work in this devastating space all the time and not get depressed I'm like well first of all I don't watch the movie don't look up <laughs> it's so good though <laughs> it's just so hard to like get myself motivated for it but but the second thing is that like it's really hopeful when I talk with policy or um, businesses who are really interested in investing in change, independent of what happens with policy, you know, and, and I think that fire is this, first of all, it's this personal topic that every human being intrinsically understands. So it's, it's kind of this unite, uniting thing for all of us. But then on top of it, PG&E was the first climate bankruptcy, right? And that was because of the campfire, right? Well, and, and other fires that happened in that time period. And so I think that a lot of companies are realizing that they can't wait to act. They have to get ahead of it. And so, cause it's a risk to them and it's a risk and it's a liability and then, you know, so you have PG&E, first climate bankruptcy, and then you have COVID where product distribution lines and company models are all broken. <laughs> like the way they've always done things are not the way they are. And so you just see this phenomenal movement from industry looking to make changes to build more resilience. And the reality is, is that many of them, they don't know how to, but they're looking you know, they're, they're looking for, they're looking to scientists, they're looking to data and information and like, they're just looking for solutions, which is really exciting um, to see that kind of movement behind it, you know? Yeah. Right. Even if the motives are like very like monetary based, it's like, it's, it's cool to see that shift finally happening. Even if it's starting with industry, it's, it's cool to see the innovations happening. It's just, it's just looking for that greater societal sort of um, understanding and and buy-in, I guess. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing that I say, cause I, I talk with a lot of tech groups, you know, I talk with Silicon Valley quite frequently. I say that as if Silicon Valley is like one entity, but... one just <laughs> giant umbrella entity. <laughs> it's the TV show, of course. Um, but yeah, like I talk with a lot of them all the time and uh, different companies and, 
you know, I think the, the main message that I have for them is that, you know, look, you're not starting from square zero. You're not the first entity or organization to try and say, how do we reduce negative impacts from wildfire? Um, and so, for example, on Wednesday, I'm actually hosting a workshop, um, which is really just a panel before the International Association of Wildland Fire. And I have invited different people who are leading national level coordination initiatives to come together and talk about how are we bringing together policy? How are we bringing together different agencies to work together? How is How are tech funding sources and philanthropies thinking and coordinating their efforts? Because at the end of the day, the only way that we're gonna create change is if we figure out how to move together instead of all moving in our own direction. Do you think we can innovate our way kind of out of this? Do you think that that's something is that something you thought about, like just like what kind of innovations we can use to work our way through this? Absolutely, I do. I do really believe that we can, and I think there's a lot of motivation for it. I think it's going to require a lot of people to surrender ego. I think it's going to require a lot of people to realize that the problem needs all of us, right? Like it needs every voice at the table, and we need to figure out how to bring all of it together. Um, so, I mean, to me, innovation, right, it's policy changes. It's not, I, I want to be clear that I don't think of innovation as just tech. I do think of it as, you know, the policies that we think about, like we say we want more prescribed fire on the landscape. The reality is that we have some existing policies that in their current state of implementation make it very hard. And they're not bad policies, right? So we can't just throw them out. So for example, the Endangered Species Act is a fantastic policy. I'm not saying throw that out, but we have to find a way to resolve how we implement the Endangered Species Act with how we implement prescribed burning. And the same goes for the National Ambient Air Quality Standards. We have to figure out how to, either providing the, the right tech to make informed decisions or through policy find ways to, or through management strategies find ways that we could meet both objectives, right? Not just one or the other, but both at the same time. Um, and I don't think that they have to be contradictory. It's just that they are in their current state. And so I'm really hopeful for change. I see so much conversation happening. That's actually why I wanted to have this panel on Wednesday was because I want people to see just how much is happening because it's so easy to think about like what's right in front of you. And, and the reality is, is that what's right in front of you is connected to so much more. Yeah, it's really, that's important to think about, especially as like just an everyday person who's worried about COVID or worried about paying rent and all these other things. Um, just trying to connect them to this conversation is really difficult because they have a lot of other things to worry about. So I guess, what would you say to that in terms of like trying to draw these folks who might have just so many other things that are going on in their lives to think about this conversation or to think about this kind of more meaningfully? Yeah, so I think this kind of goes back to earlier in our conversation, right? Where we were talking about value systems and it's not just the value systems of like big agencies, organizations, tech innovators, foundations, et cetera, et cetera, governments. It's about thinking about the value systems of people, right? Because at the end of the day, 
it's about everyone buying into the solution. And so, you know, it's not just policy implementations that are affecting our ability to prescribe burns. It's the psychology of fear, right? You know, it's the fact that there are many people who are afraid of fire because, and they, and, and to be fair to them, they have a reason to be right. Their neighbor, their friend lost a home and that's scary. Um, and so it's about trying to understand the value systems of people and placing the solutions in the space of those value systems that validate and acknowledge, acknowledge and validate those feelings of fear, which are very real, and also provide them the support to make a transition to a new way of thinking about it, right? So, you know, I've thought about it in our own personal community. Like, wouldn't it be great if we had more prescribed fires in the grasslands around our community on days when it's not windy? <laughs> but what would that take? It would require, you know, and you can appreciate this as a, someone who does public information, um, as a public information officer is you would have to have a huge information campaign with everyone in the community. Hey, this is a big initiative that we're doing in Boulder. We wanna have more prescribed fire. Here's the website you can go to. If you wanna see if a fire is actually prescribed, here's where we're gonna list it. Here's what we're gonna do. Here's how much we're gonna burn. You know, And let people feel like they have the information they need to feel safe with the decisions that you're making. And so it is, it is about big organizations, but it's also about the people because the people make up the system in the end. That was fantastic. I, I haven't explored that topic on the podcast. I'm really excited that we dove into that. That was awesome. Um, I wanted to talk about, are you, what are you working on right now? Like, what are you, what are your projects that you're currently kind of working on? Or what are you really passionate about at this moment? So EarthLab has been really invested in thinking about risk holistically. So um, risk is more than hazard. And so a lot of the conversations around climate disasters have been about the hazard or the potential of an event to happen, right? If you even think about NFDRS, the National Fire Danger Rating System that is used to set the fire danger rating on the Smokey the Bear signs every time you go into a state or national park, that's all about the hazard, which is the potential that that day has the right conditions for it to be dangerous, let's say. That's fine, but that's actually not where people make decisions, right? Because you have to consider the value system and that value system is different by each person. And by each organization. And so risk is about the hazard, but it's also about the exposure and the vulnerability. So to give a very real tangible example, COVID, right? Like this is so near and dear to all of us. There was a certain hazard or potential that you could get COVID, right? But not all of us were equally as vulnerable. Some people were immunocompromised. Some people were of certain demographics, let's say the older community or the black and brown community were more, at, more um, vulnerable than others. And we weren't all equally as exposed. Some of us could work from home. Some of us were frontline workers. And so your risk of getting COVID depended on how vulnerable you were and how exposed you were. 
not just the potential of getting it. And so that's kind of where Earth Lab is, is we're trying to think about fire more holistically in this risk space of not just thinking about the, the potential of the event, but how exposed are we to direct flame? How exposed are we to smoke? How vulnerable are we as people? How vulnerable and communities, how vulnerable are our houses and our buildings, right? And so we're trying to think in this space and we're, we're kind of starting to think about, can we put some analytics behind this? Can we start to pull earth observations from social media, from satellites together to help us to understand risk more holistically so that we can think about the risk that we have when we implement one decision versus another. And those decisions could be prescribed burning, but they could also be, for example, with power companies, where do we decide to bury our power lines? Because we can't bury them everywhere. So where is our high, where's our highest risk area that we need to do this, right? And thinking strategically about how we start shifting our communities and our mindsets to a more resilient mindset. So that's kind of where our projects have been lately. I did want to talk about uh, smoke impacts a little bit. I'm actually, I'm working on a story about it. And I also just haven't really touched on smoke at all on the podcast somehow. That's something I get asked about, <laughs> asked about a lot. I mean, the gist of it is that smoke impacts are going to continue to be, to get worse, uh, primarily driven by climate change, you know, this and that. But if you could touch a little bit maybe about some of the work you've done in the, in the smoke realm or um, any findings that you guys have had in your recent, in your recent work or projects. Yeah. So I'll just preface this with saying that I am not an atmospheric chemist. I'm not a smoke, a smoke expert explicitly, but a lot of the work I do is with smoke experts. So um, take what I say in the context of, of that. Um, but, you know, so we've learned, we've learned some things about smoke over the years. Um, first and foremost, you know, prescribed fires have different smoke than wildfires for several reasons, right? Um, and, and, and not just wildfires, but urban or wooey fires have different smoke than wildland fires, right? Because they're burning something different. We're burning plastics and metals versus trees, right? So that creates a different smoke composition. But prescribed fires have different smoke than wildfires also, because wildfires tend to, now I know Marshall Fire was the exception to this, but they tend to fall during a certain season. And that season is when it's hot and dry and there's a lot of sun. And sun is an important ingredient in how some chemical compounds interact and react with each other. And so if we decide to burn during a certain time of year, we can actually change the chemical composition of the smoke that we are seeing. And in fact, you see this in the South a lot. They actually like, it's super common in the South because they do a lot of prescribed burning down there. And one of the biggest things they talk about in the South is nuisance smoke, which actually comes from burning more wet fuels because you just have more moisture in the smoke plume, right? And H2O water, is a greenhouse gas, right? So it is, it is an emission that you can get when you burn um, in a sort of a, a water vapor form. Um, but it just goes to show like how variable that is. 
The other sort of element of thinking about smoke and exposure is not just about when the fire's happening and what's immediately happening downwind of it, which to be honest, the 2020 fire season, when you look at the smoke plumes, they stretched all the way across North America, over the Atlantic into Europe, right? So it, it can travel around the world, um, smoke can. Um, but it also happens in your, in your community. So when you have a fire event, so this is one of the things that um, researchers at CU Boulder, not me, but researchers at CU Boulder have been studying, which is the long-term impacts of smoke that were saturated of homes that were saturated by smoke during the Marshall Fire, because all those chemicals of burning houses and plastics, um, they left a residue in the vent systems, in the homes, on the paint. And so there's a lot of questions about how long does that sit around for? And what are the safest measures to mitigate? And right now there's a lot of companies that will sell their services to come and clean your home after a fire, but we don't actually know which of those services are the most beneficial and where we should really be investing our money, right? And so there's been a lot of conversations about standardizing what services, like what actually helps in that, in that, um, in mitigating the impacts of smoke on people for their health in indoor communities. Um, the other thing I can say about smoke is that we have seen evidence of um, emissions, particularly aerosols um, in the form of PM 2.5, particulate matter 2.5, um, and particulate matter 10, which is 10 micrometer, uh, micrometers, um, actually entering through the placenta to babies, right? So it's like, we think if it's this thing we don't see, but yet it can have such impacts on us in our bodies um, long-term. So that's kind of my couple minute brain dump about what I know about smoke. There's a lot of great researchers on it. And I think it's one of those things where we think about direct flame and direct impact, but it's these indirect impacts that can have the lingering effect and feed to that ecology of fear. Yeah, I was just gonna ask how this sort of plays into that ecology of fear and what that psychology, like how this is going to impact the psychology of these communities that are repeatedly impacted. I, I mean, I can say here in Boulder, it's been, there's just certain weeks where you're just like, I don't wanna go outside. We're just not going to work out outside. We're not going to go out outside. We can't see very far. Um, there's a lot of smoke and, and there's a lot of communities that are going to have more and more of that. Um, in the atmospheric community, they do talk about air sheds. So you've probably heard of a watershed where all the water from the mountains drains into one area. Well, we also have air sheds. And I think the most famous air shed of all time is the LA Basin right? Because you've got the San Gabriel Mountains and the, way, and the way the atmospheric inversion is that all of the pollutants just sit right there in this, in this air basin. It doesn't matter where they come from in that air basin, they're all just sitting there. Um, and so a lot of things that the atmospheric community has been looking into is air sheds and where those are and where smoke is pooling. And so there are just some communities that are going to be more impacted 
um, than others based on the topography around them and the atmospheric inversions that they're subject to. And the reality is, is that we're just going to see more and more fire. I mean, back in 2010, I, you know, I ran this study to project the likelihood of very large fire events going out into the future. And we saw that across the Western United States, it was between three and 300 and 600% increase by 2050. Well, Earth Lab recently published a paper that said, we're already seeing four times the amount <laughs> that we had 10 years ago. And so we're already seeing the changes that I was able to predict based on my limited sample size back then. And so the reality is, is that we're just gonna see more fire, which means smoke is gonna be more real and it's gonna be something we have to think about more. We're gonna have to build it into our homes. We're gonna have to build in air purifiers and smoke days. Kids aren't going to school today, <laughs> just like we build in snow days. And it's like, what else is there to say about this topic other than that it's probably going, it's very likely going to get worse and that we're just gonna to have to adapt to it. Like when they told me to write this story, I was like, okay, like it's smoky. Um, this is the science behind the smoke. I've talked to an atmospheric chemist about it. Um, Bob Yokelson in yep. the University of Montana. Yep, that's and one That's one I would recommend. Mm -hmm. He was great. He provided a lot of great context, but also was like, and I also live in Missoula and I like, if I like walk out of my house and I can't see the mountain range, I'm not going to be doing anything outside. That's how I gauge it. Like, so was able to provide that sort of on the ground perspective as well. But yeah, it's just like, I don't uh, like, what else is there to say other than like these, there's a lot of vulnerable populations that will be all the more exposed to this as we continue to allow this to, well, as, as this continues to happen. It's, yeah, I think just exploring, I, I would I would like to particularly explore like those vulnerable populations and why they're, why, why they are so, so much more vulnerable to these environmental conditions, to these changing conditions. Um, yeah, there's the vulnerable populations. Um, and then there's, so there's the vulnerable from the health perspective vulnerable, you know, those who are asthmatic or pregnant or older, or, you know, that, those kind of com communities. But there's also um, vulnerable in the, in the perspective of those who have the ability to do something about it and those who don't like the financial means. So I'm very blessed. I live in a house with forced central air and all the air circulated in my house gets pushed through filters and I can put in very high end filters and I, I can do that because I own the house and I can make that decision for myself. There's a lot of communities that live in rented homes or in places where they can't retrofit. And so this is something I think Oregon has been looking into is they've been looking at um, what kind of programs do they need to provide for um, not just health vulnerability, but sort of even economically vulnerable communities um, that may not have the means and the resources to be able to retrofit or protect themselves. And I think this issue in particular came up and California has actually passed a law on this. Um, but, you know, thinking about our farm workers, who's out in the field having to work through those kind of conditions. Um, and so it, it's really thinking holistically about how people are being exposed um, through time. So, yeah, I, it's, I, have you seen wildfireRisk.org as a website? Probably uh, yes. in my travels at some point. <laughs> it's such a great website, like, um, but they do do indirect smoke exposure as well. And they look explicitly at vulnerable communities. So they are looking at 
communities that, you know, who have, you know, what age groups are they in and what are their health? It, so they, they cross track with um, like the census data. Um, and so they are starting to kind of like map risk a little more holistically in that perspective. Um, and I think that governments are starting to think about this. Um, I know California passed the law, Oregon's looking for incentive programs. And I think more communities across the West are just gonna have to do that. All right, everyone, that is all we have for you. I hope you enjoyed this episode, though. It was definitely one of the more fun episodes that I've recorded, uh, just mostly because of the breadth of topics that we covered and kind of a rare episode that can touch on not only policy and technology and innovation, but also operations and the human impacts. And we really covered all of our bases there. So thanks for listening. Um, if you would like to support the podcast, we do have a Patreon. It is just www patreon.com slash lwf pod uh you can go find us over there otherwise we'd love it if you could either write us a review or maybe follow us on instagram if you don't already um we also have a twitter account that we probably don't update enough but anyway we've got a lot going on over on instagram so go follow us over there if you feel like seeing more from us and also getting good updates on when we're putting up new episodes so thank you for listening hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll catch you on the next one